Let us bow our heads as we pray the prayer for illumination. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Our first scripture reading this morning is from the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verses 4 through 11 and 16 through 20, on page 248 of your Pew Bible. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us, then, a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. No, but we are determined to have a king over us so that we may also be like other nations and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Leslie. Our New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of Mark. We read from the third chapter, verses 20 through 35. I'll actually begin with the last few words of verse 19. If you'd like to follow along as I read, you may find it beginning on page 912 in your pew Bibles. Again, listen for the word of God. Then he, that is Jesus, went home, and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him for people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. 
But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then, indeed, the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we begin, as I get started this morning, um, before we turn our attention to the scripture passages, um, I need to say that it's good to be back with you after four weeks away on vacation. Now, as I say that, I need also to acknowledge that there are probably, silently, at least as far as I know, um, a variety of reactions to that statement going on internally, a sort of small herd of elephants um, in the room, if you will. And I sort of figured um, on my first time back here, um, it'd probably be good to address that. Um, Part of that's because I know that at least the last two senior pastors Um, had the practice, were in the habit of thanking you as a congregation for your generosity in allowing them, allowing us, I'm included in that, to be away for such a period of time, for four weeks. And while that's nice, I have to say that I've always been a little bit uncomfortable with that practice um, because the fact is that if you had been here during the congregational meeting, you would have noticed that Such a period of vacation is part of every Presbyterian pastor's call to serve a congregation. It's required by the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church. And the reason for that is that unlike most jobs, most callings, most works, most vocations, um, pastors don't get weekends you may have noticed that. I don't understand it exactly. It just seems to be the way it is. I'm kidding, of course. So for more than 50 years, uh, the Presbyterian Church has required congregations to allow their pastors this significant period of time for rest and recreation and urges pastors, and believe it or not, sometimes pastors have to be urged to take that time seriously in order to remain joyful and creative in ministry and not get burned out. So, someone said this week, wow, four weeks, I wish I had that much time off. And I said, well, it's easy. Are you willing to give up the other 48 weekends? And they said, oh, no, not that. There you go. And for those of you who have been away for the past several weeks and 
so didn't know I was out. It's good to see you too. And I look forward to seeing you, hope to see you next Sunday as well when Dr. Massey will resume his series on Gideon that began last Sunday. So, with all that, let's pray together. Loving God, here we are. We have heard the words of Scripture read, and we ask, that you would be at work among us by your Holy Spirit to open our ears as we have heard and our minds, our hearts, our very souls to receive your living word, Jesus Christ, so that in him we might have life by your grace, life in abundance and eternal And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, I want to begin, I want to start our consideration of Scripture lessons this morning by reminding us all, most of all myself, that most, many, if not most, issues are usually a bit more complicated than they might seem at first glance. I say that because as I've considered, read these texts, and thought about them over the past week, um, I realized that in the course of almost 67 years of life on this planet and almost 40 almost exactly 40 years of ordained ministry that when i see a situation that seems to me to be absolutely clear cut and the correct course of action obvious completely obvious that is almost certainly a situation in which it is most critical for me to catch myself, take a step back, ask, really? What's really going on here? What do I really know? And then spend some time in prayer and contemplation, consideration, and then see if I can come back to look at this situation or issue with clearer vision. See it anew with fresh eyes. Because the stronger my immediate response to something is, it seems like the greater the likelihood is that my response isn't so much about what God wants or what faith requires as much as it is about something that's been triggered inside of me, a part that's perhaps remembering an old hurt or slight or insult and wants to react to make sure that nothing like that happens again. So, Tom's rule number one. Whenever something seems perfectly obvious or clear, that's the moment that we need to remind ourselves that Almost nothing is ever quite that clear, and there may be something we've failed to consider. 
So, case in point, our Old Testament lesson for this morning seems clear enough, right? Israel's elders come to Samuel and ask him to appoint a king to rule over Israel just like all the other nations have so that Israel can be like them. And God tells Samuel to go along with it, that the people aren't rejecting Samuel's leadership, it's God's leadership they're rejecting, which seems simple enough from the outside. But if you go back, if you go back and look at the verses our lectionary hasn't included, the lectionary hasn't included for today, the first three verses of the chapter, what do you find? How does this story begin? It goes like this. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not follow in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Well, I could go off on a tangent here about the timelessness of human spirit and, and such like, but I'm not going to do that. Does that change things for you? That Samuel's sons, it's not so much just that he's old, which is what verse 4 says, where we begin, they're getting themselves rich, taking advantage of their office by taking bribes and ruling in unjust ways so that the community of Israel is broken. That's what's going on here. So Israel had a problem. I should say that all this takes place at a time in Israel's history that scholars call the tribal amphictyony. That's not so much important for you to remember. I, like, I just like saying that word. The tribal amphictyony. It's the time of judges that Amphictyony is a um, loose confederation of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. As I say, it's the time that we read about in the book of Judges, and that book closes with these words, a, a word of sort of condemnation, if you will, a summary. In those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. It's chaos. So scripture itself is not um, laudatory about this period in Israel's history. And our passage begins with a similar kind of evaluation of that time. It's not that Israel doesn't have a problem. They do, in fact. The problem was that the elders in Israel thought they had the answer. They knew they had the answer. A king, just like all the other nations, that'll solve our problems, they said. But they forgot one thing. They forgot that Israel had made a covenant, a covenant with God that said that God alone would be their king. 
And so the elders of Israel thought, no, they knew that a human king would be better. After all, this is a real world, right? And in the real world, that's the way it's done. Real nations have kings. And so what does God say to Samuel? Listen to them in all that they say, for they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me. I don't know about you, but that kind of sends a chill down my spine. Oh, yes, they surely knew what they were doing, those elders of Israel, right? Of course, that would never happen today in the church, would it? Well, in our gospel reading, Mark presents a picture of a different situation, but a very similar dynamic, a very similar pattern. Word has gotten out about Jesus, his teaching, his healings, which are literally nothing short of miraculous. And everyone is talking about this new rabbi, this new teacher and healer, and they want to see him. So that when he comes home, when Jesus comes home, the crowds are so large and the demand so great that he and the disciples can't even sit down to eat a meal together. Not even a few moments of quiet. And with all this uproar going on, his family, of course, hears about it and decides that he must have taken leave of his senses. That's one of the words about him going around, and so they send a group to go and get him, perhaps to keep from embarrassing the family further, who knows. But even so, they go to see what they can do. And in the meantime, the religious leaders are very clear that they know what's going on. They know the truth about this upstart rabbi who's doing things no one has ever done before, he must be in league with the devil. After all, where else would he get the power to cast out demons? Their reasoning is they're men of God, and they don't have that power. Nobody they know has been given that power. So how could he? Can't be from God. Hearing this, Jesus demolishes their line of reason with indisputable logic and says, be careful. He goes on to say, truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Which has led countless Christians those words have led countless Christians across the century to wonder and worry needlessly, I think, if they might have unknowingly committed this unpardonable, unforgivable sin that Jesus mentions here. So let me take a second and say, if you're one of those people, let me put your mind at ease. The unforgivable sin that Jesus talks about here is rejecting Jesus himself, who is, of course, God's forgiveness. So you see, the unforgivable sin turns out to be 
not recognizing God's forgiveness when it shows up in Jesus Christ. It's definitional. It's the older brother in Jesus' story about the prodigal son at the end of the story, standing outside, the party going on inside, the father pleading with him to come in and refusing. That refusal is in and of itself unforgiveness, not accepting the forgiveness God right up to that moment is offering. And according to Mark, it's at just this point that Jesus' family shows up to collect him. And what happens next, as, as Bob talked to the children about, is that Jesus redefines family and says when word is sent in that his family is outside calling for him, he looks around and says, who is my family? This is my family. Who is my mother, my brothers? This these people around, anyone who does God's will is my mother, my brothers, my sisters. That's why what we do in baptism is so important. When the pastor, myself, or whoever is the baptizing pastor talks about us being family, that's not just nice words, a pleasant image. It is scriptural truth. It is Jesus' word itself. We are Jesus' family. He is our older brother. Our fellowship is part of our life together. Our education, our learning together is part of our life together. Serving together not only draws us closer, but makes us part of that global family that Bob was talking about. It's been my privilege to go to Honduras and to Central America and to other places and to experience for myself how welcoming brothers and sisters in Christ with whom I cannot even speak more than a few words of the same language welcome me as part of their family because God has made it so in Jesus Christ. All of this is what it means to be part of Christ's family, God's grace in Jesus Christ. We just need to accept it. So many things get in the way. As I was thinking about these texts and all of this this week, I was reminded of a poem that has come across my uh, consciousness, my awareness um, recently. I seem to keep coming across it. I don't think the author, uh, Sapphire Rose, is a Christian necessarily, um, but it seems to get at this dynamic, and so I thought I'd share it with you. It's called, She Let Go. She let go. Without a thought or a word, she let go. She let go of the fear. She let go of the judgments. She let go of the confluence of opinions swarming around her head. She let go of the committee of indecision within her. She let go of all the right reasons. Wholly and completely, without hesitation or worry, she just let go. She didn't ask anyone for advice. She didn't read a book on how to let go. She didn't search the scriptures. 
she just let go. She let go of all the memories that held her back. She let go of all the anxiety that kept her from moving forward. She let go of the planning and all of the calculations about how to do it just right. She didn't promise to let go. She didn't journal about it. She didn't write the projected date in her daytimer. She made no public announcement and put no ad in the paper. She didn't check the weather report or read her daily horoscope. She just let go. She didn't analyze whether she should let go. She didn't call her friends to discuss the matter. She didn't do a five-step spiritual mind treatment. She didn't call the prayer line. She didn't utter one word. She just let go. No one was around when it happened. There was no applause or congratulations. No one thanked her or praised her. No one noticed a thing, like a leaf falling from a tree. She just let go. There was no effort. It was no struggle. It wasn't good and it wasn't bad. It just was what it was and is just that. In the space of letting go, she let it all be. A small smile came over her face. A light breeze blew through her. And the sun and the moon shone forevermore. Maybe something like that is what we're being called to do, to just let go and let God alone be king over our lives, to just let go and accept that Jesus himself is our older brother and our savior, and to step into the family and the freedom that he offers and gathers around himself, the family of those seeking to do the will of God. Love one another as I have loved you. I don't know. Maybe it's something to consider. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.